Well, I read an article this past week titled, get this, A Gas Cloud Collides with the Black Hole at the Center of Our Galaxy and We Get to Watch. Now, who wouldn't read that article? But scientists have been tracking this, a, a giant gas cloud, roughly three times the mass of the Earth, and it's hurtling at a few thousand miles per second directly for a massive black hole at the center of our galaxy called Sagittarius A-star. And, and this thing is even bigger. It's four million times the mass of our sun. It's just this ginormous, right? Now, this, this doesn't pose any threat to us. We're not at that part of uh, the end times yet, so don't get nervous. It's just really cool to see, right? But seeing it is what I found especially cool because you can't see it. At least not the black hole. See, black holes aren't visible because they don't give off light. By definition, they're, it's like a star that has burned out and it collapses in on itself. And you don't see it directly. You can't actually see a black hole. Instead, they suck in all the light around them along with anything else that happens to be in the vicinity. And that's how you know it's there. You know it's there because of the effects that it produces on things round about it. And if things go as expected, astronomers will see a massive display of this black hole's effects when this glass cloud hits it in a few months. There's this great word I learned, spaghettification. That just says it all. <clears throat> or it may do nothing. That was the other part of the article, but that doesn't go along with my illustration, so I won't focus on that. But you can't see a black hole directly, but you can see it indirectly. That's the point. You know it's there by observing the evidences that it produces. As I thought about that, I thought, well, you know, that's a lot like how we see God's grace in our lives. So here's the question. How do you see God's grace in your life? How do you know it's there? What do you look for to know that God's grace is at work in your life and in the lives of other people? Well, the answer is we see it by seeing what it produces. God's grace is this powerful, this awesome reality that evidences itself by the effects it produces in the lives of God's people. And when you see the evidences of God's grace in your life and in the life of other people, there's only one appropriate response. If you can read about a black hole as awesome as that is, and you can just stand back and marvel at it and give praise to it like we were just doing, well, how much more for the awesome, powerful grace of God in our lives? The only appropriate response is thanksgiving and praise. And that's how Paul begins the letter of 1 Thessalonians. So turn with me, to, if you haven't already, to 1 Thessalonians 1. It's on page 986 of the Pew Bibles in front of you. I want to look at how Paul gives thanks to God for the evidences of grace in the lives of these Thessalonians. And I think there are two things that Paul looks at to see evidences of grace. He looks at the evidences of conversion in verses 2 and 3. 
And then he looks at the evidences of election in verses 4 and 5. And for both of those evidences, Paul's response is thankfulness and praise to God. So let's read this. I'm going to read the whole chapter, but we're just going to mainly focus on verses 2 through 5. But let's read the entirety of chapter 1 here in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Well, thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the marvelous grace of God that makes itself known in so many different ways in the lives of your people. But we look back, ultimately, to the display of your grace on the cross of Jesus Christ. And we rejoice and give thanks and praise to you for how that finished work of Jesus is then applied by the Holy Spirit to the lives of your people and shows forth your greatness and your glory and your power and your majesty. And we give you all the thanks and all the praise and all the glory. And ask for your help to do it more now. For Jesus' sake. Amen. So how do you see God's grace and conversion in your life? Well, Paul answers that in verses 2 through 3. Let's go back and just let's zero in on verses 2 through 3. And how Paul gives thanks for evidences of conversion in our lives. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. So this is a prayer. Everything from verse 2 all the way through verse 10. This is just Paul's prayer of thanksgiving. It's all connected. He's just giving thanks and prayer for these Thessalonians. But he's specific. Verse 3. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And what Paul is mentioning here is something that's been called the Pauline triad, which is just a fancy way of saying Paul often refers to these three things in the lives of believers. And you see them there in verse 3. He mentions faith, hope, and love. He does that Elsewhere in his letters, if you remember 1 Corinthians 13, that great chapter on love, in verse 13 he says, So now faith and hope and love abide, these three, 
And of course, the greatest of these is love. And he gets at it again in, in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8, where he says, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. And so again, you see it here in, in verse 3. Paul thanks God for the Thessalonians' work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope in Christ. So why is it that he mentions these three? Why group them together so often in his letters? Well, I think he does that because faith and love and hope are right at the core of what it means to be converted, of what it means to be a Christian. You see, there's a lot that you can do without being converted. You don't have to be converted to do religion, do you? You can attend church. You can, you can keep some of the rules, at least to a point. You can serve in the church. You can even believe the right doctrines. And you don't have to be converted to do any of that stuff. There's a lot you can do without having to be converted. But what you can't do is you can't place trust, heartfelt trust, and love and hope in Jesus Christ. You have to be converted in order to have that happen in your life. True conversion runs deeper than the mere externals of religion. True religion begins in the heart. So, and that's why Paul doesn't simply commend the Thessalonians for these externals. Right? The externals are good things. And we're going to come to that. But it runs much deeper than the surface. He thanks God for the evidences of true conversion in their lives. Look back at verse 3. Let's take the first one here. Three evidences of true conversion in the lives of the Thessalonians. He mentions the work of faith. And in each one of these, faith, love, and hope is followed by this phrase, of something. Faith or work of faith or labor of love. So what Paul is saying is the faith, the love, and the hope produce something. They evidence themselves in some way. So let's look at how he shows that. What is he looking at in the lives of the Thessalonians that just leads him to thankfulness and praise to God? Well, let's take the first, faith. Our faith is evidenced in our work. So what then is faith? We need to get a definition of what faith is. Well, it's helpful to say what it isn't first. Faith isn't merely believing something true about Jesus. That's not what Paul means by faith. It's not less than that. Don't get me wrong. But it's much more than that. It's not merely trusting in a doctrine. But faith is trusting in a person. Knowledge and faith aren't opposed to one another. But you can have knowledge without faith. You can't have faith without knowledge. But faith is personal. The Thessalonians were trusting in Christ. Not merely truths about Christ. 
True faith is nothing less than receiving and resting in Jesus and all that He's done for us on the cross. And Paul says that kind of faith, true saving faith that receives Jesus, that rests in Jesus, it produces something. It produces works. Here's how Paul put it in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. For in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. That's what true saving faith does. Faith works. But now, did you hear what Paul did there in Galatians 5? Faith working through what? Through love. Paul repeatedly connects those two. They're very closely related. And so the next phrase, look back at verse 3, is our labor of love. Our love is evidenced in our labor, in our hard work of sacrifice. So what is love? Well, again, what love isn't? Love isn't a verb. Well, we hear that often, don't we? John Mayer, I think, got it wrong on this one. I know what he was getting at. And I know what people often mean by that. But I think often the sense of that phrase, love is a verb, I think gets it wrong. Now, 1 John chapter 3, verse 18 says this. Do not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. That's true. Love should produce labor, no doubt. But I think we miss the whole biblical notion of love if we reduce love to the things that we do from love. Love is not a synonym for obedience. Let me say that again. Love is not another way of saying obey. Listen to how Jesus put it. And I I think we still have this out in our sign. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so often we read that and we just, boom, love equals keeping the commands. But listen, listen carefully to what Jesus says. If you love me, then you will keep my commandments. Conclusion, love is not the same thing as keeping the commandments. It produces the keeping of commandments. Love produces labor. So what is it to love? Well, I I think loving is to love Christ in a way that we delight in Him. To desire Him above all else. That's what it means to love. When you truly love Him You're going to labor for Him. Love is first and foremost vertical. right? Because we don't know, is, is Paul thinking here about love for God? Or is he thinking about love for other Christians? I think he's probably aiming at love for other Christians. But it's so closely tied in Paul's theology of love, we can't separate the two. The vertical love we have for Jesus Christ bends out horizontally. And expresses itself 
in our loving deeds for others. Here's how John Piper put it in the book Desiring God. He said, Love is the overflow of joy in God that gladly meets the needs of others. I think that's right. I think love produces something in our lives. It evidences itself in labor for the Lord, but for others. So faith produces work. And love produces labor. But third, Paul says, hope produces steadfastness. Our hope is evidenced in what he says, our steadfastness. Christian hope isn't a a simple optimism. It's not wishful thinking. Sometimes we, we, we use the word hope in that way. Well, I hope it clears up tomorrow. It may or may not clear up tomorrow. I I had hoped that it wouldn't snow last night. It's not mere optimism. It's not wishful thinking. It's not maintaining a positive attitude. That's not the essence of Christian hope. Hope is only as good as the object you hope in. And for Christians, that hope, that object, is a person. Look back at verse 3. He speaks of our hope In our Lord Jesus Christ. It rests on the certainty of what He accomplished for us in the gospel. Hope is certain. There's confidence in hope. It's objective. You can look at something, a reality, and you can rest your hope in it. Listen to how Paul puts it In Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. By the way, notice the triad again here of faith, hope, and love. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you've heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. Do you hear what Paul's saying there? Christian hope has a ground, it has a basis, an unshakable foundation that we rest upon. Brothers and sisters in Christ, your hope is laid up for you in heaven where Jesus is. And it's confirmed for you by what Jesus did in the gospel. So where do you look to cultivate hope in your life? You don't look to yourself. It's hard to keep positive attitudes. It's hard to remain optimistic. You can't look inward for these kinds of things. The Christian hope is outside of us. It was displayed finally and forever on the cross of Calvary. And especially in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why hope produces steadfastness. Now, the word here, steadfastness, can also be translated endurance or perseverance. And Paul is probably referring to the ways in which the Thessalonians were persevering in faith in the midst of persecutions. Here's why I think that. If you look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, here's how he begins the second letter. He says, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness, same word, 
and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you're enduring. The Thessalonians were being persecuted. They were undergoing trials. They were suffering. And what Paul is saying here is that their hope in Christ, in the midst of suffering, allowed them to stand firm, to persevere, to keep going. That is an evidence of mere wishful thinking. Listen, superficial hope doesn't stand the test of trials. If you're looking inwardly for hope, when suffering comes, it will not persevere you. You will not come through it as a Christian. There's only one hope of standing firm, of enduring trials and suffering, even persecution. And it's the certain hope grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ, or what Hebrews 6.19 calls a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. This is evidence of God's grace of conversion in the lives of his people. He looked at the Thessalonians' work and labor and steadfastness, And he gave thanks to God for the ways that they evidenced true conversions in the lives of those Christians. But he didn't stop there. He also draws attention to the the evidences in their lives of God's grace in election. So look back with me at verses 4 and 5. Continuing to give thanks. He gives thanks in verse 3 for the evidences of conversion... Of the Thessalonians. But then in verse 4, he begins to give thanks for evidences of election. Look at what he says. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you or elected you. Verse 5. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Let me just stop here and acknowledge that election is a hotly debated issue in Christian circles. And it has been since the early days of the church. You can look at the debates even within Paul's letters. And so we're not going to resolve all the debates this morning. And I think it's interesting how how Paul mentions this. This is a very young congregation, and he just kind of passes over that word. He just drops the election bomb and just moves on, right? Right? Now, in in some churches, if a pastor did that, oh, his week would be full of phone calls and emails. But Paul doesn't see a problem with that, right? Paul can just draw... Apparently, this was common knowledge for these Thessalonians. But nevertheless, there's debate in Christian circles about this issue, about election. And I think, broadly speaking, we can nuance these, but just very broadly, there are two dominant views. There's one view that says God elects us, God chooses us because we chose him. It suggests that God, before anything was created, looked down through the corridors of time and he saw what people would do when given the choice to choose Jesus or to reject Jesus. And he looks down through the corridors of time and he sees all the people that would choose him and then he chooses them based on their choice. 
That's one view. That's and, and, and Christianity today, that's probably the dominant view. But there's a second view that says we choose God because he chose us. So when he looks down through the corridors of time and he sees those who have chosen him, the reason they chose him was because he chose them first. That's called unconditional election. And the other view is called conditional election. So here's the question. We'll just begin to scratch the surface of today because Paul addresses this issue of election more than once in these letters. It's going to come up again, so we'll come back to this. But let me just take a few moments this morning and, and address those two different views. Which one is, is biblical? That's the question for us, right? We can talk day and night about, you know, what does this lead to and so forth. But fundamentally, our question is, what does the text say? What's Paul's view? How does Paul understand these things? Whose choice is ultimate? Ours or God's? So let me try to give a brief answer from this passage, and we'll try to stay within First and Second Thessalonians to do this. But look with me back at, at verses 4 and 5. Look at the way that Paul identifies God's grace and election for the Thessalonians. Verse 4, Paul says, We know that you're elect. Now that statement in and of itself is just really something to think about, isn't it? The doctrine of election for Paul is meant to provide assurance for believers. I find it interesting that so often people will reject the doctrine of election because they think it robs us of assurance. They're just frantic. Well, what if I'm not part of the elect? But Paul's arguing, he's arguing just the opposite. The doctrine of election, rightly understood, should give us assurance of God's grace. So, but here, how does Paul know they're elect? Verse 5. Here's how we know. The word because clues us to the evidence that Paul sees of the Thessalonians' election. When the gospel came to the Thessalonians, they received it in faith. And when Paul sees that, he says, that's evidence of election. In other words, receiving the gospel in faith is evidence that God has already chosen you for salvation. Now, let me just pause here again because I know the concern that many have when they hear this. The, the, the objection comes, well, if that's true, if, if election is based off God's choice and not our choice, well, then are you saying that our choice doesn't matter? Or worse, or that we don't have a choice in our salvation? Well, if that is your concern, then hear me loud and clear on this. Your choice matters. It matters eternally. You cannot be saved unless you choose to receive Christ. Period. Your choice matters eternally. So don't hear this sermon about election and think, well, then our choice doesn't matter. It matters. 
If you leave this room this morning without receiving Christ, there's no hope for you of salvation. Paul would say that's evidence that you're not elect. We know our choice matters because the Bible tells us our choice matters. We don't have to leave the passage. Just just think back on what we just looked at. Paul just got done thanking God and commending the Thessalonians for their faith, for their love, for their hope in Christ. And here in verse 5, he thanks God and commends them again for the ways in which they received the gospel in faith. He's not thanking God for his faith or for his hope or for his love. He's thanking God for the faith, hope, and love of the Thessalonians. So the question is, the question is not, do I have a choice or does my choice matter? You do and it does. Okay? That's not the question. The real question is this. Why did you choose Christ? Why did the Thessalonians choose to receive the gospel? Whereas so many others in Thessalonica heard the same message, but chose to reject it. Why did they choose to receive Christ and to put faith and love and hope in Him, whereas so many around about them tried to, tried to kill Christians because they were so opposed to it? Well, verse 5. Because when the gospel came to the Thessalonians, look back at verse 5. When the gospel came to them, the Holy Spirit went with it. Verse 5. Because our gospel came to you, not in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. The Spirit went with the word. That's why there was power. That's why there was, what he says, full conviction. See, if the Holy Spirit hadn't been powerfully present in the hearts of those who heard the gospel, they would never have had full conviction of its truth. They never would have received the gospel in joy. And think about how difficult it was for them. Remember, they were undergoing persecutions and afflictions for receiving this gospel. So if you just drop down to verse 6, look at the Holy Spirit again. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. And here's the all-important phrase. We'll come back to this next week. With the joy of the Holy Spirit. And just as we saw with the word of in verse 3, the joy is evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit produced joy in the hearts of the Thessalonians when they heard the gospel. The faith, the love, and the hope that the Thessalonians had, they were all given to them by grace. Have you thought about that? Faith, Love, hope, these 
essentials to conversion, the Bible says we do those things. We believe, we love, we hope. But when we ask the why question, the Bible gives us the answer because God, in his sheer mercy, gave us those gifts. Now, there's a lot of places we could go in Scripture to show this. I'm just going to stick with these two letters. And what I want to do is I want to take each one of those uh, each one of those um, essentials to conversion, faith, hope, and love. And I want to show you from, from these letters where Paul says each one of those is given to his people as a gift of grace. Well, let's take the first one. Let's take faith. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13 says, We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by God. And now listen, look at every, every word. Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved, or your translation might say from the beginning to be saved, through sanctification by the Spirit, and there it is, belief in the truth. What Paul is saying there is that God's Election, his grace and election produced the faith of the Thessalonians. Because God chose them, they believed. It's a gift. What about love? Let's take love. Stay in 2 Thessalonians, go over one chapter to chapter 3, verse 5. Sometimes we read these things and we just kind of skip right over them. But there's, there's so much theology wrapped up in these just this, these one-liners from Paul. Listen to what he says. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Right? It's easy to read that and just pass right over it. But look what Paul's praying. May the Lord direct your hearts. To what? To love. In other words, God is at work in our hearts, moving that heart to choose Christ, to love Christ. What about hope? Second Thessalonians two. Just go back one verse or one chapter. Second Thessalonians two, verses sixteen through seventeen. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us, gave us what? Eternal comfort and what? Good hope through grace. May he comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. You see that God gave us hope. And and, and we're told it's through grace. So back to the question. Let's go back to the question. Did God choose you because you chose him? Well, again, suppose God looks down the corridors of time to see who would choose him. What would he see? Suppose he looks down the corridors of time at the Thessalonians. And suppose he sees the gospel being proclaimed to this group of people. And suppose he sees this group of people choosing to receive the gospel. Okay? 
What is he seeing? He sees his Holy Spirit going with the gospel and changing hearts, granting faith, directing hearts to love Jesus. Or to use some of the imagery elsewhere in the Bible, taking out hard hearts and giving soft hearts that are able to receive Jesus. Raising people from the dead spiritually. Causing people to be born again. So why did the Thessalonians choose to receive the gospel? Why did they choose to believe when others didn't? Well, let's bring it home. Let's bring it home. Beloved in Christ, why did you, sitting here in this room, choose to receive Jesus? Why did you put your faith and your love and your hope in Him? Why did you do it? Have you ever thought about that question? For yourself personally, why did I receive Christ? And maybe you've got people round about you that grew up with you, heard the same message, had the same upbringing, had the same opportunities, and they didn't. But you did. Why? Well, it's not because you were any smarter. It's not because you were more spiritual. It's not because you were any less sinful. Not because you were any more deserving than anybody else. We're not going to claim any of that. There's only one answer the Bible gives us. And it's this. God, out of His sheer grace, set His unconditional love upon you and He chose to save you. And He provided for you everything that you need to make that happen. Isn't that amazing? We know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because, look, look what the Holy Spirit did when the Gospel came to you. Look at the marvelous evidence of God's grace in your life. Thanks be to who? To God. Not to us, but to Him. The, the reason that we give thanks to God for our election is because election isn't based upon us. It's based solely upon God's grace. We choose Him because He chose us. That's why we, as Christians, delight to give thanks to God. Remember, this is a prayer. Paul is just praising God. Jesus, and thanking Him for what He did in these believers. And we're meant to thank Him for what He's done in us. Now, I I realize that doesn't answer all the tough questions surrounding election. Lord willing, in the weeks to come and months to come, Caleb, we will continue to plumb the depths of these things. We'll be thinking through them. The, The text brings it up again. So we'll cover it when the text covers it. So stay tuned, but but let's not forget why Paul gives us this here in chapter 1. The evidences of our election, just like the evidences of our conversion, is reason to be assured of God's grace in our lives. And brothers and sisters, it's reason to give Him thanks. Thanks. 
So three questions as we close. Number one, are you seeing evidences of God's grace in your life? Is there evidence of God's grace in election and in conversion in your life? Have you received the gospel of Jesus Christ? And I asked you earlier, does our choice matter? Answer, yes. If you haven't chosen to receive Christ this morning, oh, I pray that you do it. I pray that you would see in Him everything, everything. And be willing to give up everything to have Him. Are you laboring for Him as an expression of your love for Him? Are you seeing evidences of God's grace in your life? But second, are you seeing evidences of God's grace in the lives of others? It's much easier to point out where others are in the wrong. It's so much easier to point out faults, isn't it? It's harder to point out evidences of grace in other people's lives. Evidences of grace, they can be slow, they can be gradual, but look for them in your own life, but also in the lives of other people. Just like Paul's doing here, he's thanking God and he's commending and encouraging these Christians because he's looking for evidences of grace. And finally, are you giving thanks? What percentage of your prayer life is thanksgiving? Now, there's nothing wrong with requests. Paul does that. As long as we keep our prayer life in balance. I know for me, working on this text, I'm seeing more imbalance, more requests than thanksgiving. Let's try to strike that balance as Christians. And if you need to be giving Him more thanks and praise like like we all do, focus on grace. There's no lack of evidence for grace in the lives of His people. And the more you see it in yourself, the more you see it in others, the more grace-oriented you become, the more joyful you'll be in Christ, And the more thanksgiving and praise he will get from you. Let's pray. Father, that's the aim of this passage. And we pray by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit, you would make that more and more the aim of our lives. To see more grace. And to give more thanks to you for your grace and kindness to us in Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.